0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Re where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Today, I chat with Kendall Shaw, who is a VC at Blockchain Capital in Web3. And oh, my God, I haven't done a crypto interview for almost two years on this podcast, which is pretty funny because I used to just overly do crypto <laughs> interviews. But, I mean, Kenjel is incredibly... She does a really... It's essentially a speed run through the current state of crypto. And she does... She's so quick with her words and concise and clear that I just felt like I understood a lot about data availability and uh, labor versus capital and DAOs and how NFTs like provide meaning in different ways. It was just, we talked about everything. So uh, I hope you enjoy this interview today with Kendral. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. This century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world and how you can work with those trends to become a live player and building a solarpunk future. And to chat about one of those crucial trends, which is web3, I'm excited to chat with Kendal Shaw. Kendal is a partner at the web3 VC firm Blockchain Capital. She's contributing at Crumby Fund, EcoDAO, and Defems Mag, the magazine, and then she's writing at her Substack and at Mirror. Kendal, thanks for being on the show and welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, excited to dive in. And it's funny, yeah, when Kendal and I were chatting about before the show, it was like we were talking like what kind of stuff would we like to dive into and it was like you know and these times are just so nice in crypto where the rest of the world was like okay blah 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 something happened with nfts and then they go back to ignoring it and so but these times for us are like it's so juicy there's tornado cash kind of privacy things there's merge that's happening soon there's all kinds of stuff and so i think for um, kendra for you and i and for the listeners. The goal is just kind of understand Kendra's perspective on where she sees the Web3 ecosystem today and where she sees it going. Uh, but before doing that, Kendra, I guess I'm curious first to understand for you, um, what was kind of, because I think crypto, and especially being kind of, you know, a, like a VC-ish type, but for anybody in crypto, it requires this like hyper curiosity about lots of different things. And so I'm curious for you, like in your childhood, what, is there something that kicked off that curiosity when you were 5, 10, 15 years old?
1: I think um, it's a great question. I think curiosity is probably one of the main ingredients that I found to be extremely important for school and learning and sort of everything that I did. Um, I was a very avid reader from a young age. I was always sort of seeking out a bunch of different interests. So was always interested in history and social sciences, but also art and design and math and economics. I just felt like I could not find the end of my interests. And when I came across um, you know, Bitcoin back in 2017, but really the broader sort of crypto ecosystem, what really struck me was this was so interdisciplinary. There was so much learning that kind of required um, any participant. You know, you just, you jump in and you can start asking questions and um, there's not always a clear answer. And I just found that to be really provocative
0: yeah I love that. and and is there do you remember something in your childhood where you, you were kind of already curious about lots of things? did that was there like a teacher that was part of that? Was it just kind of natural? Were your parents a part of that? How did that kind of get instigated initially?
1: You know, I definitely think my my parents played a role, and I think my sister probably played a little bit of a role there. I think the biggest factor though, was the fact that I was really shy. And I felt like I could find worlds in books, and so I really looked for you know books to kind of become my friends and um was like the the picture of the kid like in the back of the bus or in the middle of the bus like reading a book instead of talking to everybody like that was me growing up, so I think it was really more just like my personality and finding um a lot of joy in reading that's that's
0: great that's really interesting I think that there's it's funny for me to think of because I remember I remember being in the like middle school battle. For, you're trying to read a million words, and I was I was a I liked reading, and but I and I was like you know second or third. But I remember you know you know this woman Jane. She was she was she got like six million words, and, it was like, and so you were the J, where you were just like you were able to just like churn through tons and tons of books. It's also interesting. It's kind of a worse is better thing where it's like your shyness or whatever, and like the society says like oh blah 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 extroversion introversion things. But actually, it's like it enabled you to just like go into amazing worlds and read and create a curiosity that then you were able to take with you for the rest of your life. So I don't know. I think that's a cool kind of way that books, let me ask one other question. Actually, were, were the books that you were reading like when I was a kid, I was, I, I did not really, I read like a bunch of world war two books and then like fantasy stuff. Were you reading like nonfiction interdisciplinary stuff or just were you reading novels and things?
1: I would say I was reading a lot of novels until I got to high school. And then I fell in love with, nonfiction I went through you know my phase of reading um like memoirs like autobiographies a lot of uh even like business books like I just felt like there wasn't really a topic that I like couldn't find something interesting to read about but definitely I think like fantasy and history those were my worlds when I was younger um and it really just felt like I don't know I think imagining a world in your mind that could could not really compete with my day to day, which is like a very normal suburban, you know, life just felt really, really fun.
0: That's cool. It also makes me think that that framing there makes me think that like, you know, Twitter or, you know, crypto Twitter or any kind of Twitter is like a version of that for kids today where it's like, okay, normal life kind of is boring. But like, if I go into Twitter, I'm like memeing with these other folks about the future of money or whatever. (laughs) That's kind of fun. So do you think let's start chatting about um, Web3 and maybe just... At a high, I mean, this is a, a general question, but how do you see the current state of Web3 in 2022, and where do you see what do what do you see happening in the next year or two that you're especially excited about, or, or worried, or curious about?
1: Yeah, so I think the way I think about where we are in 2022 is, you know, this technology and this ecosystem has been roughly around for call it a decade, give or take a few years, and it really felt like the first decade was. Um, critical for getting some footing around infrastructure and just making it so that we can onboard, you know, the first five million people or, or ten million people, and it feels like this next phase is really going to be about that hyper sort of growth and scale for from a from a user perspective. So obviously, we still have a long ways to go with infrastructure, but it really feels like some of these super interesting consumer use cases or social use cases, you know, non financial applications of crypto can start to take shape moving forward. And so the way I think about the next two years in particular is we had this massive um, wave of experimentation over the past 18 months where we were doing all sorts of things, with NFTs, with social tokens, with DAOs, with communities. Um, and I think that rapid iteration is really important, but the reality is these things take time to develop, you know, this idea of, you um, a self-sustaining organization like a DAO, like that's going to take multiple years to really truly realize poten- its potential. And so I think we're now beginning that that phase.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's like, yeah, and so much of, I am yeah, just like the, the the funny, just like the ETH Global, ETH Denver events back in the day uh, in the 2018, or it was just like, they were, it was so infrastructure because it was like so much needs to get built out and building XDAI and build, it was just like all of that. And now, and then all of the, yeah, obviously the crazy explosion of of initial experiments, um, and then we'll see which experiments start to succeed. What kinds of experiments? Well, I guess let me let me ask a like a maybe a load balanced question here, which is, how do you? Um, you know, in terms of like, there's the NFT side of things, which is like the cultural mimetic value, owning a pl- piece of the internet. There's the DAO side of things, which is, you know, future human coordination, blah, 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 kind of like peer-to-peer kind of wiki style things or whatever, subreddits. And then you have kind of DeFi, which is the kind of financial engineering, kind of like the back end of a lot of these things, financial applications. Where do you see, where do you find yourself more gravitating to between those? If, if you would define those as those three big categories, where do you, what are you most like curious about?
1: Yeah, I think personally, I found myself gravitating slightly more towards the Dow ecosystem, as well as some of the more consumer use cases, so things that are in the NFT stack or related to NFTs. I find DeFi to be absolutely fascinating, and I've spent quite a bit of time with within DeFi and investing in DeFi, um, but I'm personally really excited about the crossover between the everyday user in crypto and i think that's really going to start with some of the more social use cases
0: yeah interesting and so do you like these social use cases um like maybe can you give us an example of and for me i'm you know I'm, I'm relatively deep in the crypto world but i'm thinking about like the social like like i don't know these like random games is it like you know to have to be part of these online communities what are the social use cases that you're like excited by for a skeptic yes, like I, me or not a skeptic but a pseudo skeptic like me
1: yeah well uh, I guess let me, let me put it put it like this, that, you know, there's going to be hundreds of attempts and I don't think more than a handful are, you know, truly going to change um, effectively human behavior and consumer behavior the way that we saw the Facebooks and the Instagrams of the world change our behavior. Um, but I, the way that I think about it is when I first joined the internet, you know, I was a, I was a kid, but a lot of the conversation was really around localized communities or sort of niche interests. And so what I mean by that is, um, again, taking it back to books, I loved reading. And so I was on book Tumblr all the time, basically just finding cool quotes and cool images and all this stuff related to my favorite authors. I think the localization of communities online today is rather difficult to find. I think Reddit is probably one of the few places where that culture is very active, perhaps some of the gaming um, platforms as well. But when you go on mainstream platforms like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, you're really speaking to a global audience and the game really is attention Um, you know, driving attention and aggregation of of your audience. And I feel like there's an opportunity across DAOs and maybe some of these consumer use cases for crypto to really bring back some of that um, localized feeling to how we engage with our communities, how we spend our time online, and and hopefully move it slightly away from sort of the attention-seeking platforms that we have today and something that's slightly more um, a give and take.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, and what about um, what about crypto would enable more localization versus massive like aggregation kind of stuff?
1: So two things. One is I hope we can create um, sort of sustainable communities that don't have to keep growing and growing. So there's this misconception that DAOs need to be scaling to thousands and thousands of users, millions of users and what that actually means. I think smaller DAOs actually have a great... Um, you know, potential moving forward of, okay, we have hundred people or a few hundred people, like how do we coordinate in this like sort of microcosm and create something that has sustainable economics, but perhaps isn't going to be this billion dollar social platform. So that's like one, I think area where I think DAOs could be really interesting. I think the second piece is, um, a lot of our data online today is, you know, relatively hidden from the everyday user. You're not really in control of it. And so I'm hoping that you can take your data with you, different social experiences. You know, I am certainly aware that lots of users care more about convenience than they do about their data, but I think the balance is shifting. And so perhaps um, crypto technology can can play a role there.
0: Yeah, cool. I just want to reflect both of those. I mean, the, the, the second one is, and I do think there's an interesting piece here. Where it's like, yeah, if you're able to, <laughs> Excuse me. Um if you're able to take your data with you, I think it'll, it'll probably, it's just gonna be like a crazy bimodal outcome, just like the original internet was, where you have like these massive, massive aggregators that then, if you're able to take your data anywhere, well, then you don't get even locked into Facebook or Google or whatever. There's gonna be like some kind of weird meta, um, not meta in the platform, <laughs> in Facebook sense, but like, you know, a meta platform that is able to aggregate all of the interoperable things together with the smoothest UX, blah, blah, blah. And so you, you can even see a, a massive, even gl- Grand Slam style winner there. And the kind of uber, uber long tail of all the subreddits um, might even be more possible because you're able to kind of take your data with you to like these random new small communities. Tell me me how you think about the on the on the data or on the sustainable community side i think that's an interesting point that like it's kind of like being able to invest in a subreddit or something like that where it's like look there's this subreddit it's got a thousand ten thousand hundred thousand people and it's like a great crew that's doing cool things there um but how do you think from like a vc perspective when you're trying to get these 10x 100x kind of black swan style returns investing in something that doesn't have this quote unquote desire to for growth feels kind of antithetical so how do you think about that from an investment perspective
1: yeah, 100%. And I, I, I certainly think that the um, DAO ecosystem interplay with venture is something that's going to be, I think, more uh, defined over the next few years. Right now, the approach I would say that makes the most sense is um, building out some of the infrastructure that will allow many of these DAOs to flourish and finding opportunities there for, for, for investment. Um, so this is not to say that, you know, I think DAOs themselves are investable and will be investable, but without adequate data and understanding of what those models look like, I think infrastructure is a really great way to start thinking about how that's going to evolve.
0: Yeah, I, that yeah, that direction seems, it's, yeah, it's an interesting kind of, I think the classic like form of this is like, you don't, um, uh, when something is hyper from a smile curve perspective, if something is really Commoditized in the there's no um, money in the commoditized thing, and there's no money perhaps in another way. Says that if the thing that's being produced from the quote unquote Dow factory is these little Dows that are um, smallish in size, it's hard to invest necessarily in any of those small Dows. But you could invest in the thing upstream of them, which is the infrastructure that allows them to survive the you know the gnosis safes of the world, the snapshots of the world, the things like that that actually like enable the the ecosystem to to thrive and and, and win. Is that is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Exactly. And I think just to maybe also call out two sort of paradigms here with DAOs is that, you know, it's the coordination of capital and labor. I think we've seen a lot of experimentation on the capital side with things like Gnosis Safe, which, you know, I think is amazing technology and many many other sort of um, capital coordination protocols. I think the labor side is relatively untapped. And so that's another area that I'm really excited about is you know, are we are we truly going to innovate on the corporate structure, or do we think that, you know, this is there's gonna be some sort of like limit to where and how DAOs actually work?
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think that the um in differentiating capital and labor mix and it's a, it's just like a classic crypto thing where it's like, yeah, and and, and where we're able to yeah, there's kind of this, this balance back and forth. But yeah, in general, all of the initial use cases are just financially native because it's it's money, you know, it's money. And so that all you get all this capital stuff and you need to make sure you're doing the capital right. If it's a DAO is a, a subreddit with a bank account, you need to make sure the bank account, the Gnosis safe is OK. But then there's the whole other side of the like the subreddit side, which is like, OK, how do you actually um, coordinate the labor there? Are, are there things... How, how are you thinking about that side? How how should these communities coordinate the labor, the community? What what kind of cool new proto-experiments are you seeing on that side?
1: Yeah, so I think um, I'll call out a couple of different projects and, you know, um, just ideas that I think are interesting. First, I think, is that there's going to be this tension between um, labor laws and sort of how humans have historically worked and then how DAOs are presenting work, so um one one company that um full disclosure we're investors in but worked out is really solving for um the HR and the the labor law portion of you know if you want to have hundreds of contributors all over the world how do you do that in like a legal and compliant way so i think that's going to be a really important question for DAOs to answer um especially as they start coming across their first tax season or they're you know getting to a, a certain scale where they really need to think about um, Sort of the compliancy from that factor. I think the second that we, we're we're seeing a lot of great discussion discussion across the entire community of what does um, hierarchy look like within a DAO? Should you know what does it mean to have a flat structure? What does it mean to have you know working groups and have certain working groups be delegated with certain amount of power? You know, are you really we're really like playing around with political systems here? Many of many DAOs resemble. Um, just our democratic system that we have in the United States. And we're starting to see the emergence of, uh, you know, political parties and, or protocol politicians and all these really, really cool concepts um, being played out in like this little micro uh, ecosystem, which I think is really fascinating to witness.
0: Yeah, I love both of those. I mean, I think the labor laws one is, yeah, that's like a, <laughs> it's just like when tax season comes, and then the Dow that somehow you you and your friends kind of posted this good meme online, and then the meme people loved it, and then oh no, now there's like ten thousand people in our Discord, and we've like released a token, and the airdrop went better than expected, and oh god, there now there's like fifty million dollars of AUM or whatever in the in the treasury, and then you're like okay, now it's like tax season. How do we do any of this? So that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a and then the other side, kind of the flat hierarchy, tyranny of structurelessness piece. How are you – yeah, I mean, what – I don't know the the right ways to ask this, but yeah, do you see there being – uh, like, yeah, I guess I'm thinking about the like. It feels to me like there's been some of the recent innovations have been there's you know the the you know one token one vote side of things that then turned into these kind of council style things one person one vote optimism etc. Graph council and then you have a um you know Haas you had a recent good piece about like um how you need constitutions as well where you need like a constitution is even further upstream of that. So I don't know what are the kind of some of the things that you're seeing around this new flat structures and how, how will they look different than normal things or how will they look different if at all?
1: Yeah. So I I guess I have, I have a couple of different, I think operating principles that I tend to think I tend to look for in DAOs and feel like are important. So hopefully this answers your question, but um, I think the, the, (laughs) I think the point that has made around constitution is really well, well um, positioned and maybe constitution is, is, not the right term, but I I really just tend to think of it as common values or some sort of like shared value system across the community of I am opting into this. And I think that's really important because everybody is allowed, obviously, to voice their opinions and have differing ideas. But if you're operating under the same shared value system, then I think you're going to create that overarching alignment that's really important across DAOs, regardless of whether it's flat or hierarchical. So that's number one. I think the second piece is that as we start getting, you know, protocols with more um, capital under in their treasuries and under management, just seeing on the operator side, you know, you want you want somebody who can be good stewards of capital. Right. I think sort of saying we have this big pool and then we're just going to open it up to the community has led to a lot of troubles and concerns, particularly in downturns when, you know, treasuries aren't managed properly. So I think the second most important piece is do you have a system in place to make decisions around capital management? And then I think the areas where things can be more flat, or you can potentially experiment with, you know, uh, like a pods model where people are moving in and out of different working groups. I think the important piece there is that you have a very clear system of onboarding and offboarding. So how how do you decide if somebody is not delivering and, you know, it's okay to say, okay, maybe this is not the, the right fit for you right now, or, hey, we would really love to onboard some new members and have a really smooth process for that. So I think those are three sort of key um, pieces that I look for. And, you know, regardless of if it's flat or hierarchical, I think you need those.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like you have this, uh, it's the, the funnel for for um for, for labor in some ways. It's like, okay, you're like ringing your bell and you're saying, hey, here's like what the values that we're all about and the memes that we're all about. And then you have people who are kind of like starting to kind of come in and get onboarded into that world and then might need to get offboarded later. And so having a clear process for that. And then also, yeah, the clear stewards of capital type you having you're not just open sourcing it to the fans but being like okay people like here's here's the goals here's what we got to be doing and so like if we're trying to like operate as this unit here's like there needs to be someone driving the boat i also i just love that it's such a nice part about the weird versions of twitter it's like both you and i are aware of the hasu governance you know constitution piece and that there's just like a memetic kind of um pool that we can kind of like suck from um which is kind of nice so i want to ask a Actually, let me ask. Let me ask, let's ask a weird question about that. Are there any? What kind of Twitter, crypto Twitter, like memetic, um, like pools have you been really kind of like um, drinking from recently? <laughs> <That's
1: kind of laughs> I weird. love that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I think, um, recently our team at Blockchain Capital has gone really deep down data availability, modular blockchain. So certainly, fa- and you know, we're investing actively in that in that area. So we're spending a lot of time, I would say that sort of Twitter sphere, um, where you're, you're kind of going down these like longer rabbit holes um, around how data availability might evolve, how different VMs might evolve, you know, what's going to be built up the stack and so on and so forth. Um, And then I would say on like the more social side of things have been spending a little bit more time thinking about um, the app versus protocol question so we we've been seeing a lot of social protocols emerge where you know they're trying to create a decentralized social graph and you know I'll encourage a lot of developers to come and build these social applications on the flip side we've seen historically that you kind of need like a breakout in order to see that real hockey stick growth and so we've we've also got the application first approach which you know, I think is saying that social is still social at the end of the day, we we need to create something um, that attracts a ton of users, and then kind of build the ecosystem around it. So playing a lot of, with that sort of back and forth and, and some of the trade offs there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because like, you kinda of wanna create a protocol because that's the whole idea in some ways between these, you know, DSO kind of web three social things is like, look, there's a protocol and anybody can do whatever they want and, and you can bring your own algorithm and you can um and and, uh, and then the the apps that get built on top and it's like, Okay, cool, like but I'm not gonna like use this thing or whatever you know it's like it was created through some like hackathon based on the and so versus like something the other on the maybe 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 to throw somebody under the bus not not deep i love all the lens protocol stuff but it's like none of the i'm not like using their like feed or whatever yet or any of the things that have been built on that side versus on the other side you have to throw another person under the bus the um uh the freaking there's like the snoop dog plus i don't know some kind of weird like very app first like game nft something where they're like being like come over here, you know, and you're like, I don't know if I need to go over there right now. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think of it as, um, like, the behaviors that a lot of these applications are asking for are very similar, but it's really more around, you're like, oriented around different niches that might take off within, you know, whether it's gaming or art collectors, like, there's all sorts of, like, little niches that folks are trying to gear their experience towards. But um, yeah, I hear you. I think both have big questions on, like, on how that is going to evolve protocol versus app.
0: Yeah, yeah. And do you think, I mean, talking, that niches framing, I really like the niches, kind of ecological niches framing, where you have a, and it's connected to what you said before, which I actually wanted to ask about, which is this, you know, I said, hey, what's going to be happening? You said, look, bro, um, there's going to be hundreds of experiments. And so like some of those things are going to take off, you know, and then you said, hey, here's the specific stuff. And so I think I want to, I'm curious about, I don't know, like how you think about, and you could use an idea maze framing here, you could use like an ecological search space framing. Like, how do you think of, you know, speed running the idea maze? Like, how do you see, how do you like conceptualize of that idea maze and that kind of like value maze where people are going forward, they're trying to determine what customers want, what people want, what DAOs want. How do you kind of think about the exploration process there?
1: Yeah, that's a um I think that's like the ultimate question particularly yeah. in in crypto right now is how do we organize all of the ideas and the information that we have in front of us. Um I think there's two thing two ways to do this. So I I tend to think of it as bottoms up or top down. So I think the the bottoms up approach that I think about is um why do why do people like NFTs? Do they like them? Because I'm just going to use NFTs as an example. But do they like them because they love the artwork? They like to make money. They've made friends. Um, like, what is like the inherent reason driving driving people? I think you can follow like the speculation and the financialization path down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes around. You know, we're creating pieces of the internet that can actually be traded now and that has implications or, you know, providing liquidity to some of these like digitized assets. Um, that's like one pathway. The other pathway, which, you know, perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about later is around like, oh, I just love this artist and I really wanted to collect their work. And, you know, collecting work is not necessarily something that's accessible to the everyday consumer today in the physical world, but perhaps it's more accessible online. So, Basically, what I'm saying is try to try to follow behaviors and um, see where that leads you in terms of like the end result. I think the top down approach that I think about is um, crypto is like very horizontal. There's so many different industries that it can touch. I tend to consider what are some of the um, gaps or what are some of like the areas for improvement in existing industries across, you know, art games or whatever it may be. And then how might this technology be applicable? Um, you know, I, I, I really don't necessarily subscribe to this idea that, you know, like, you just put it on a blockchain, and then we fixed it. Like, that's, um, I think that's a, a thing of the past. And so there's elements, I think that can be supplemented with crypto and um, elements where it maybe it doesn't make as much. sense
0: yeah that's interesting yeah i think it's like the bottom up it's kind of it's kind of like the classic almost like dog fooding adjacent coming from customer needs build something people want we're like okay what's actually have okay cool you want to do that you're into it for the money great we'll make a financial sp- oh you're into it for the friends great we'll make you know some f-r-e-n-z thing you know um, and, um or you're into it for the the arts or the meaning there okay great we can make a meaning based thing um versus the kind of top-down thing where you're kind of looking at big markets and you're kind of cross applying them and seeing where crypto might be able to have a, a big um thing yeah that that makes some sense is there a um i guess that the i want to ask a question here about maybe transitioning a bit to or actually actually one more final question about the thing you mentioned data avail- availability tell us more i vaguely know blah, blah, blah. You want to get the data needs to be available. And maybe if it's on an L2, you can't get, I don't know. Tell, tell what. Remind me, what is that and, and how does it connect to modular blockchains and stuff like that?
1: Sorry, it was I went on mute for a second there. Um, Yeah. So, so data availability, I think um, it's a super interesting topic. I would definitely say that I am not the expert, but um, there's some really great resources online. But You know, I think the basic thesis is that um, if you think about Ethereum or you think about a blockchain in general, it has a bunch of um, jobs to do. It has to uh, make sure that the data is available as it relates to transactions. It has to um, actually uh, execute those transactions and find consensus in that process. Right. So those are some of the jobs to be done by a blockchain. Historically, the thesis in the space has been will have one blockchain do all of it. Um, And this is what I would refer to as like the monolithic thesis. And that's really what um, has been sort of the historical design of, of Ethereum. Moving forward though, there's this thesis called the modular blockchain thesis. That's really saying, what if we separate some of these jobs to be done and have different pieces plug in there? And so one of those pieces is, okay, how do we make the data available? And what that really is referring to is ensuring that the data is correct valid valid and then gets um, has no sort of bad actors that are trying to like manipulate the transaction data and so Celestia for example is is one data availability solution um, that is really trying to um, to solve for this problem and in the, the challenge with data availability today is that it's a major bottleneck to scaling blockchains so without going too deep into what that actually looks like the reason this is being spun into its own sort of offshoot solution is it allows ethereum and other um other sort of blockchains in general to scale to a, a level they couldn't before.
0: interesting okay great so i mean that this is a great because sometimes when you have someone who's only super 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 deep into data availability they're talking but this was a good high level overview for a, a noob like me so yes you have, you have you want a blockchain has the kind of monolithic approach right now where it has you want there to be data that's available. I want to double click on that a second. And then you're like running the transactions and you're kind of into consensus around what transactions have been have happened and who kind of owns what at the end of that, the kind of consensus piece. Um And it kind of reminds me, that makes me think about like, yeah, breaking that into the modular components where you're like, okay, maybe consensus can be done by, maybe consensus is done by um, the Ethereum blockchain itself. And that's where the consensus layer happens. Uh, But then the data availability layer happens at Celestia or something like that. So, so, but how, so, so when you say the data needs to be available, um, what, so I'm like a little smart contract on Ethereum and I need to make sure I'm like looking at, I'm like saying how much um, ETH is in this account or something like, or how, tell me, can you give me a specific example of how data availability would work and how Celestia would do it?
1: Yeah. So data availability is really talking about, um, the data that is being put on a blockchain. So making sure that all that transaction data is available, which helps to ensure that transactions are, you know, kind of valid before they get executed and then ultimately settled. So it's really sort of like the first step, I would say, the, in the entire process of settling and executing a transaction is making sure that you know there's no um, discrepancies across all the different nodes for a particular blockchain. So the way that Celestia is solving this is through um, this, this kind of solution that's called data availability sampling. And without going way too much into the detail of that, it's really um, thinking through how can we sample data without having to retrieve all of the the data, which would require a lot of space, um, and be able to sort of sample and still prove that the data is there and accurate. So hence the name data availability sampling, there is a lot of sort of math and some cool ZK tech behind the scenes here that I'm not going to go deep into. But that's like the general concept is if we can instead of requiring you to go and ensure all of the data is accurate instead just sort of sample a percentage and be able to like extrapolate that to the entire sample set. Um, that's really effective.
0: Cool. That makes some sense. I think that there's a yeah, it's the first because it's funny because the word data can mean so many different things. And so it's like, which data are you talking about? But it's like, okay, the beginning of the data where you're kind of trying to understand yeah, the, the data needed in order to like package up transactions and do whatever. Um, and then it's good because even just knowing that I can Google Celestia and data availability proofs and data availability sampling, that well, that's great. So thank you for that. I want to transition in the final kind of 10 minutes to, to kind of a couple of final things. The first is you were a co-creator, I believe, of Karimbi Fund, and which is this great kind of uh, syndicate, DAO syndicate with a bunch of uh, women and non-binary and various other folks in the ecosystem. Um, and I think that it's great. And I'm also curious, like, how do you think about, I'm just thinking about like the kind of women in blockchain um, narrative over the last kind of five years where it's like, you know, the best ways to kind of, I don't know, the, like uh, like thinking about like what you've learned with Karimbi about how to kind of, go about this kind of women in blockchain thing in good ways to make sure that, you know, good folks are coming in to kind of, I don't know, somehow like collaborate with the other like women in blockchain people that exist, but to not just kind of be like, oh, we're like, this is just just a women in blockchain thing. So tell me more about like what you've maybe learned with Karim Fund, like how to bring more good women into the space.
1: Yeah, so I think um, it's a a great question. You know, I think there have been so many amazing educational initiatives that have kind of come into the crypto space over the past few years. You know, when I first joined crypto, almost five years ago, I didn't feel like there was a lot of focus and attention on this. And so um, I think that's been part of the conversation over the past two years, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, But the way that I position it is two ways. So there's a lot of emphasis on zero to one today, which is, how do you onboard women? How do you start educating them on terminology? Start thinking about, you know, getting a job in this industry and all of that. There's less focus on one to 10. And what I mean by that is um, crypto is still a really small industry. It is very much about asymmetric information, you know, just sort of being in the right Um, conversations and in the right rooms is something that you're you're definitely going to feel, you you know, within any sort of like fast growing industry. So I think a lot of women um, are really more looking for sort of mentorship and support as they continue to build their careers and be seen as leaders and um, really just having an impact in the industry. That to me is where I think we're lacking in sort of resources and what I would love to focus on. And I think that's what Colmarivi is really focusing on is how do we get more founders in this space that are women? How do we make sure that they have the right networks and they're getting the right support to be able to, you know, build out um, their, their companies and organizations.
0: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. that, That makes a lot of sense. It's like, the zero to one thing is just like, you know, the, the Coinbase learn the kind of just like massive, just like get in, you know, rabbit hole GG, like more and more. And then it's like, OK, cool. Now you have a bunch of women and other folks who are like, OK, I'm like excited to build stuff here it's like okay great now you need to kind of here's just like yeah continuing to like um open doors and push them into to to places of 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 power and to open places of power for them that makes a lot of sense as well um is there is there i I, I i always love asking the question here too which is just like for me as a white, I remember my first kind of 13 um, interviews, which were all like crypto adjacent, I wasn't thinking about it. And I just ended up interviewing like 13 dudes. And I was just like, oh, my God. It was like an embarrassing moment. Um, and then so then um, and now for my podcast, generally, both are just maybe. 10 to 20 percent crypto but then like 80 percent other stuff it's like i have like a 50 percent 66 percent goal of like interviewing women or whatever because just like it's just like in your the, the perfect example of this where it's just like it's it doesn't you don't have to decrease your bar at all you know there's like zero it's just like all you have to do is like take away your blinders for two seconds and then you're just like oh my god there's incredible like people here is there anything else you might recommend to like random like you know you know rich white american dudes <laughs> rich white straight american dudes like how they can like quote unquote, be an ally or like be a good person within the crypto space?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I I know for a fact, like I know a lot of this sort of bias doesn't necessarily come from any bad intention, but again, it's just like the blinders on. So um, I think the key thing I would say is just like plugging into different distributions. So like, you know, putting up job postings in communities where you're typically not posting or Um, making sure that you're like co-sponsoring events with like women oriented groups so that, you know, they know that like, Hey, you're, this is a great application pool and you're sort of like putting your foot forward there. I think things like that can go a really long way. Um, And then even just, I think just like stopping and thinking about it, like it might not change the outcome, but it does sort of change the top of the funnel. And that's really the end, end of the day. Like that's what, what's most important um is like making sure your top of the funnel allows for that outcome to potentially be changed it it might not and that's okay um but i think that's just kind of like ways i think about it and just being sort of more proactive i think um goes a long way
0: yeah i love that i think that the um and that's kind of where we've you know where we have this web3 in society center and we're hiring for various like a meta glue dao kind of dao infrastructure tooling thing and then like, like wag me boot camp It's just all you have to do It's just it, and it allows you i think it's both like the legally correct the answer it's like the right thing to do where you just like you say like great we just want like a quote-unquote healthy top of the funnel you know and then and then when you start to look at folks then you can do your normal like oh is this person good bad otherwise you know but just like having that kind of more spaciousness around the top of the funnel is an easy good way so i want to ask we've been focused mostly in this conversation on some of the specifics for, you know, like data availability in the next couple of years, or, you know, like, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know what, what the NFT or like community, you know, DAO marketplace might look like. What do you see as, um, let's talk about maybe the 10 year future. What's, what will the world, what do you see as some of the exciting, yeah. What crypto in the world in 10 years, what's going to be going down?
1: Yeah. I love that question for, um, just like the mental exercise of like, okay, what does the next, what does 10 years from now even look like? I think two things to me, um, I hope, I I hope to see. One is I hope that um, sort of crypto becomes slightly more invisible, but works really, really well. So I would love for it to be some of the benefits that come from running on, you know, a decentralized network or having your, um, you know, your fiat sit right next to like all these digital assets or maybe like what digital commerce could look like. I hope that part of it just becomes sort of ingrained into daily behavior. I think that's really critical. If we if we think that this industry is going to sort of um, absorb into our daily lives, it needs to feel more natural and more um, part of our day to day. So I think that's number one. And, and perhaps that's a little bit vague, but I think there's a number of ways to get there. And then I think the second piece is... Um, I am, at the end of the day, a optimist, and I really hope that we can find ways for crypto to help connect um, either underserved communities or communities that are slightly less um, active in financial markets. I hope it provides them pathways to being more financially connected, to perhaps being more socially connected, to play a role in some liquidity of of these markets. Like I really think that that's... um, part of like the financial story for crypto that hasn't truly realized its potential. And I really, really hope we do.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that there's like, I mean, the first one is just like a classic total need, which is like, you know, we have these pie in the sky ideas about like what's going to happen. It's like in the end, it needs to be better, faster, cheaper, you know, and it has to just like sit in with nice UX and blah, blah, blah. And you're living your life and you just tap your phone and it pays with whatever. It does some kind of load balancing of your various cryptos and blah, blah, blah And it just pays, you know, for your your, your Snickers at the store. Um, and so that I think is really good. And I think it's interesting to think about the different narratives here in terms of what... um. You know, crypto is always because there's because memetic narratives have to exist here. And like the initial one was like anti, you know, Bitcoin times was like anti state. um, And then also anti bank, of course, you know, 2008 financial crisis. And so And then we started to get kind of more recently uh, the kind of web three narrative where it's like anti, you know, web two folks. It's like, oh, meta, we can also shit on them, you know, like that's easy. Um, And so that's a side of things. And then this other one is like the unbanked narrative, which is, you know, something that like, you know, Facebook's Libra or whatever was all about a bit and, you know, Celo and those communities are about. And I do think it is when you just like take all the financial capital, all these things that like exist within crypto and as it starts to seep into um, you know, more developed markets. And then it's just like, okay, now there's going to be so much of that desire also to like bring other folks, unbanked folks onto both M-Pesa, but then onto crypto and all these things. And then just going to like, I can just see it kind of sucking more and more folks into yeah, this global economy that we want to exist for everybody. Um, let me ask one other question on that. Is there a, uh, so, so we're, we're building at Brute, this kind of web three and society center, which is thinking about just like, if we were to look back in 30 years, like you know, when we look back at Web 2, we're like, there were some things that were really good, blah, blah, Wikipedia was awesome. Some things that were maybe arguably less good. Um, I don't know, disinformation or whatever, like the outrage, you know, things like that. Do you think that there's, um, what kinds of things would, do you think that the ecosystem should focus on to, so that such that in 30 years, when we look back, we're like, okay, we actually did this right.
1: I think continuing to push the conversation around, privacy is really important. I think privacy is one of those issues where um, it might not feel like the everyday user cares. I think it's a really difficult conversation with government and regulation, but I think if we don't prioritize it, it's going to be something that we end up um, sort of wishing we did. Just like in Web2, we wish that we had put maybe a little bit more emphasis on how data is used and where it's made available for the individual consumer. And I think that a lot of that has come back to bite us. And um, I think we'll see that with the privacy conversation. Cool.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah. The privacy one is kind of interesting. And I'll send you this piece afterwards. There's this, because everybody's always just into privacy, but there's this amazing piece by this dude at Stanford that was talking about um, the end of privacy is what it's called. And it's all about how we should actually as as people who, with power in the kind of uh, developed, you know, you know, global northwestern world, that we can, we actually should be, we should embrace our lack of privacy um and 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 use that as a way if, versus the folks who don't who if you don't have privacy and you're in saudi arabia and you get determined by the ais that you have um behaviors that might be mean you're gay well then you're in prison or you're killed or whatever and so it's like kind of like um i, I don't know also I'll, that's a i i directionally agree but then that piece always comes to my mind i'm like oh what about that thing so i want to ask uh three or a couple quick overrated underrated here and so you just kind of you give it and uh you know you know fifteen to thirty seconds overrated, and you know a little bit of an explanation. Um, do you think that Ethereum is underrated or overrated?
1: underrated I think um there's just so much potential from here, so i'm I'm super excited about the next five ten years of ethereum.
0: That's interesting. I think that's kind of a, because I think there was a thing of like Ethereum came and it was like, oh, but there's going to be all these other L2s and, you know, there's Cosmos and there's Polkadot. There's Cosmos and there's BSC and there's all these other realities that exist. And then it's like, well, actually, if from a pure developer, as Solana, obviously, but if from a pure developer, you know, ecosystem, it just it's crazy how it's continued to have that network effect. I don't know. Is that like your kind of vibe as well? Or like comparing it to Solana?
1: Absolutely. You know, yeah. I just think there's crazy network effects and I feel like the, um, the momentum has continued to build and I'm just like super excited about the types of apps coming out of the ecosystem. It doesn't feel like it's sort of just like monolithic culture. It actually feels like there's all these different pockets of like really cool things happening.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. And I think there's like an, like an, as other things provide competitive pressure to it, like Solana or whatever, then it like pushes the L2s, the polygons, the, you know, optimism of the world to kind of step up. Um, Do you think that the merge itself uh, coming soon is overrated or underrated?
1: I think it's overrated in the sense that there's too much price pressure. I think it's underrated in the sense or maybe well rated that it's a huge huge milestone and i'm super excited
0: yeah they've been working on for a long time it's cool to see danny ryan etc just like okay this is the it's like four years of work bro um the uh with so many people around the world uh the final one is refi do you think the refi world is uh overrated or underrated
1: i think it's underrated right now i think it's still fairly early and and well not super well understood so from my lens, I think there's there's more work to be done there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a kind of a funny thing where it's like, as a VC, you're kind of incentivized to think that most things are underrated because you're like, refi There could be amazing stuff happening there. If you're a founder building there, great. Like, let's like, I would totally invest in you. So I think there's kind of a funny versus yes you're like you're you're priced into like being um to thinking things are underrated because they could actually end up amazing um beautiful well thank you Kenjal for the, the call today if anybody has a um so a if you're a cool founder that is looking to do um st- if looking to build things within the crypto world definitely feel free to reach out to Kinjal. she's on twitter at underscore kenjall b shaw that's K I N. J-A-L-B and then S-H-A-H. So definitely check that out or check out Karimbi Fund or EcoDAO or any of these like DAOs that she's contributing to. Um, And Kendra, do you have anything else to say to our listeners today?
1: No, thank you so much for for having me. It was great chatting. And and yeah, feel free to reach out. My DMs are open.
0: Gotta have them open DMs. Um, Beautiful. Well, thank you, Kendra. And thank you listeners for being here today. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with the community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R O O T E.co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, You can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.